From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. readers and historians, Maryland has always been confounding. Its location along the Mason-Dixon line meant it was the seat of war for many pitched battles and divided the loyalties of its citizens. But for all the impact, bloodshed, and division, its contribution to the Union Army is often overlooked. Confederate memory clouds the history, but today the clouds are lifting thanks to the work of professor and historian Dr. Timothy Orr. Dr. Orr has begun to chronicle Marylanders who served in the ranks of the Union Army of the Potomac, a story long overdue that we'll begin to explore on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast, and before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives, and we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Timothy J. Orr is an Associate Professor of History at Old Dominion University. He earned his Ph.D. at the Richards Civil War Era Center at Penn State University, and he worked for eight years as a seasonal park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park. His many publications include Last to Leave the Field, The Life and Letters of First Sergeant Ambrose Henry Hayward, Never Call Me a Hero, A Legendary American Dive Bomber Pilot Remembers the Battle of Midway, a volume co-authored with N. Jack Dusty Kleiss and Laura Lawfer Orr as well as several scholarly essays about the Army of the Potomac. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Dr. Timothy Orr, an associate professor of history at Old Dominion University. And in your bio, we got a sense for some of the publications that you've done and the places that you've worked and just this all-encompassing sense of uh, history that sort of is pervasive throughout your story and your life. So where did you grow up and, and where did this passion for history come from? Where, can you point to one moment in time or is it just sort of you were immersed in it? Uh, I think it's more the latter. I was immersed in it. Uh, so I grew up in uh, a town called Falston, Maryland in Harford County, uh, which is not too far from a kind of large uh, urban area called Bel Air. And yeah, I was just interested in military history from an early age, and my parents nurtured it and put uh, whatever books they could find that they thought would interest me in front of it. And the Civil War was a topic that caught my attention early, and because of our location, it was very easy for a mom and dad to drive me to Gettysburg National Military Park, which was only about an hour and a half away, so you could do a day trip out there, and we spent countless afternoons on the battlefield. And it's one of the places that I would frequently go as a youngster to kind of nurture my love of history. And, you know, eventually I got into the whole reenactor craze in the early nineties, you know, trying to experience the civil war by, you know, dressing up. And then uh, eventually went to Gettysburg college uh, where my passion for history was sort of 
I don't know, injected with steroids because you were, you were there on the park and I found uh, work as a seasonal ranger there over the summers. And uh, so our listeners know uh, this is where you and I met. Right. Uh, you were a seasonal ranger there for your first summer during my very last summer. And that's how we intersected. And at some point while I was at uh, the park, I eventually decided I wanted to pursue history professionally. So I wanted to become a Civil War historian, and one of the best programs in the country is the Penn State University. Uh, there is a wonderful center there called the Richards Center. Uh, I got accepted and then earned my PhD, and then I've been a military historian ever since. And so it was kind of a, a multi-stage process for me, uh, learning history first as an enthusiast, uh, then as sort of a buff, and then finally as a professional scholar and educator. And it was just sort of a, a natural process for me. But I would say if I had to credit anyone, I would credit my parents for nurturing it at an early age. Uh, I think when you're young and receptive uh, and you, you have this, this obsession <laughs> as a kid, uh, it is good for your parents to find ways to, to get you to connect with it. Uh, so it has a primordial attachment to you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, we've interviewed now hundreds of people and it's, it's like a constant theme where it starts some, at some point in life and there's some figure in their life who, who feeds that, uh, you know, what you called your, this obsession, this passion, whatever you want to describe it as. And then it, you know, it sort of, um, moves into something more professional and there's study associated with it and all those sorts of things. Now, you've published, though, on a wide variety of different topics. So you've gone from World War II to the Civil War, Midway, Gettysburg. Why the interest in Marylanders? I mean, I guess it's probably baked into the fact that you grew up in Maryland. Um, but did you have Maryland ancestors who fought in the war? What's the, the connection here? Because we're going to be talking about Marylanders in the Army of the Potomac. Yeah, I did. Uh, I didn't know that I had a Maryland ancestor in the Civil War until a little bit later on in life. Uh, but my father did a lot of genealogical research, and um, one of our direct ancestors uh, was a sergeant named Nathan Alexander. He served in a company in the 4th Maryland Infantry, which was part of the kind of famous Union Maryland unit from the state uh, called the Maryland Brigade. Uh, so he joined the Army of the Potomac in the spring of 1864. And Sergeant Alexander, I guess he was about 19 when he enlisted in 1862, and so probably in his early 20s when the Civil War was over. So he fought in a lot of the heavy action later in the war with the Army of the Potomac. So battles of the Wilderness, Cold Harbor, Spotsylvania, and all the way up through Appomattox. And so there was a Maryland ancestor uh, in my uh, lineage, and the more and more I sort of got into Civil War history, the, the more I thought there was something to the story of Union Marylanders and what they did. And so just so people know right off the bat, where can they, we're going to be talking about this blog and, and some of the interesting um, stories that you've gleaned from your research. But if people want to find it, where can they find this blog? Yeah. So my blog is called Tales from the Army of the Potomac. Uh, all you have to do is Google that phrase and you'll find it. And basically what it is, it is a blog of essentially human interest stories about people and personalities and ideas and concepts that come from the history of the Army of the Potomac, which is sort of the, the, the body of soldiers that I most admire from the Civil War. I thought they were a, a very incredible and, and meaty story. And the whole purpose is to kind of look at the stories of this army from 
the people who experienced it so that they become more more humanized and less like i don't know pawns on a chessboard as sometimes happens to military history the more that we we scale out this is more of a uh, a deeper dive micro history of it and you know i, I just I have to say, I don't have any sort of methodology when I find stories. It is simply things that interest me at the time that I think are, are deeply human moments. And, and so the idea is to really kind of give the Army of the Potomac its, its due and talk about some of the people and personalities who, I don't know, don't get as much attention as they should. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I was the, the follow-up question here, the obvious one is, is this going to turn into something more than a blog maybe someday? But I also... Would be remiss if I didn't mention um, one of our former colleagues and a, and a friend, Greg Coco, and sort of thinking that this reminds me of some of the things that Greg would write. Um, so yeah, so for uh, listeners out there, um, Nick and I work with uh, an incredible ranger back in the day, uh, Greg Coco, who is a Vietnam War veteran who worked at, as a licensed battlefield guide and park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park. And one of his sort of approaches to the battle was, again, to really humanize the people who experienced it. And a lot of his books were about uh, suffering and death, uh, his favorite subjects, really, to be honest with you. Right. Uh, we talked about, so he did a lot of work on stories of field hospitals and care of the wounded and, and burial of the dead. And this was always his approach. And he had kind of a small series that he did with a local publisher, called Thomas Publications, called On the Bloodstained Field. And these were just basically little human interest stories that that um, he found interesting. It just kind of, you know, told the, the character of the war, what it was like uh, just through these little incidents that were recorded for posterity. They don't really get into the big meta-narrative of the Civil War. And he always felt that it was necessary to pick up those stories that fell through the cracks. And so I, I would... Greg, he was a person who didn't really uh, like technology at the time, but I imagine like if he were still around today, he would um, he would he would admire this blog. I, I hope for for what it uh, for the uh, I don't know the for for what it uh, for the way it mirrored his own his own research. Yeah. You know? So so I, I definitely t- I took a lot of uh, advice, I guess, from Greg, and uh, hopefully to to good effect. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think you're right. I, th- I think he would have liked it. So let's talk a little bit about the Army of the Potomac. So we've been talking about it. And, and I think, um, you know, for people who are familiar with this kind of stuff, we throw around different terms. And we talk about the Army of the Potomac, the Army of the James. We talk about the Union Army, all these different things. Um, for someone who's not familiar with all of this, maybe take a step out and then kind of set the scene. So what is this army? Where did they fight? Why does it matter today? What what does it mean to be a part of the Army of the Potomac? Um, kind of give us a little bit of a picture of who we're talking about here before we dive into some of these human interest stories. Right. So the Army of the Potomac is the premier Union Army in the Eastern Theater. So that's the theater of action that basically encompasses Northern Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. So all the, the famous battles of the Civil War that are often talked about, uh, Antietam, Spotsylvania, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, the Wilderness. Uh, this is the army that fights at those engagements. Uh, it goes through a host of commanders. Uh, its most famous commanders are uh, George Gordon Meade, George McClellan, Joseph Hooker, and Ambrose Burnside. And throughout, I don't know, the, the memory of the Civil War, the Army of the Potomac has often been seen as the hard luck, bumbling army of the Eastern theater. Uh, it was often eclipsed 
in terms of fame by its counterpart, the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, which had a stable command structure under Robert E. Lee. And the Union Army was seen as the, the losing army uh, that was always kind of bumbling its way towards victory. Uh, and this was a, an idea that was kind of encapsulated by a historian named Michael C.C. Adams when he wrote a very uh, um, influential book called Fighting for Defeat. Uh, but in the end, um, I, I think we do a disservice to the Army of the Potomac if we uh, remember that aspect of it, the, the fact that it lost so many battles, because in the end, it was the army that defeated the most powerful Confederate army on the continent uh, and brought that army to heel at Appomattox in 1865. So it is a victorious army. Uh, and I think telling the story of, of how they achieve victory is instrumental because it explains how uh, the nation is reunited and ultimately reunited uh, without uh, slavery intact. Uh, so it is an army that not only spreads emancipation, uh, it is an army that uh, fights in a difficult environment. And it's also an army that fights under the microscope. Uh, it is an army that was constantly criticized by the press. Uh, indeed, it actually had war correspondents who traveled with the army and gave daily updates. And we might say it is one of the first American armies to be so thoroughly scrutinized in the media. And to have that monkey on its back was a very difficult thing for soldiers and generals alike. And so I think it's important today because, you know, if you're trying to understand how the nation was reunited during this slaveholders' rebellion, you have to go and tell the tale of the Army of the Potomac. And uh, if you simply distill it into the fact that, oh, the Union had more men, they were inevitably going to win, you're doing a disservice to the, the actual hard fighting that was done by the soldiers and the, some of the brilliant generalship that eventually emerged uh, within the ranks of the Army of the Potomac later in the war. Yeah, and, and kind of back to that point you made earlier, you sort of fall into that trap of looking at the meta if you go down that road of, well, the Union had more, so they were going to win. And then by doing that, you kind of do a disservice or you overlook the suffering of the day-to-day -day and, you know, these these Coco-esque stories, if, if we'll give it a term. But, um, you know, so, sort of the, the work and the toil of, you know, these men who served over those, those several years of combat. So um, it's important not to kind of you know, paint with those broad strokes or kind of look at it as a foregone conclusion because at certain points during the war, it was anything but foregone. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, they, this army probably had one of the hardest jobs of the war, uh, which is to be an offensive army in one of the most easily defendable states on the continent. Northern Virginia is, is no um, easy nut to crack. Uh, it is full of, of rivers and bayous and thick, second growth forest and mountains that are a defender's dream, right? So uh, not only did the Confederates stack this army uh, with uh, some of their best generals, the, the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, but it's also an easy place to defend, has a great rail system behind it. Uh, so whoever was going to attack Virginia was in for uh, a tough chore ahead of them. And the fact that the um, Army of the Potomac does it uh, and does it so thoroughly by 1865, I think, is, is worthy of praise. So why don't we take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll get into those Marylanders who served in this army, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. 
This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Eunice Mary Kennedy Shriver, an advocate for the abilities of all American athletes, read by Megan Bacco, Director of Communications at Preservation Maryland. Eunice Mary Kennedy Shriver. Eunice Mary Kennedy Shriver used sports to change the national and international treatment of those with intellectual disabilities. Eunice was born a Kennedy into one of the most politically powerful families in American history. She was the fifth of nine children of Rose and John Kennedy. President John Kennedy and Senators Robert and Teddy Kennedy were her brothers. Her older sister, Rosemary, had intellectual disabilities. When mothers of children with disabilities complained that their children were not welcome in summer camps, Eunice started one on Timberline, her Rockville, Maryland farm. Then, seven weeks after her younger brother Robert was assassinated, she officially opened the very first Special Olympics Games in Chicago. It was a summer of the 1968 protests. The press all but ignored the games. There were less than 100 people in the stands. But 1,000 athletes from 26 states were represented. Now, more than 3 million Special Olympics athletes from all 50 states and 181 countries participate in year-round training for the Games. Eunice's influence also led to research initiatives and the establishment of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. You are the stars and the world is watching you, she once said. By your presence, you send a message to every village, every city, every nation, a message of hope, a message of victory. In 1984, Eunice Mary Kennedy Shriver received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award for her life's work. Eunice Kennedy Shriver died in 2009 at the age of 88. President Obama said she was an extraordinary woman who, as much as anyone, taught our nation and our world that no physical or mental barrier can restrain the power of the human spirit. The original oath that she recited the very first day of the first Special Olympics is still the oath of the Games. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined by Dr. Timothy Orr, an associate professor of history at Old Dominion University. And up to this point, we've been talking about the Army of the Potomac, some of the the work that he's done um, researching the Army, writing about the human interest stories of this Army. Um, And... You know, it's an army, as we know, we're going to be talking about Maryland, but made up of units from around the country. And you've made the point in your blog, um, I think you said, it's difficult to be a Marylander, it's sometimes difficult to be a Marylander and a fan of the Army of the Potomac. So why might that be? Well, that is because, well, for two reasons that are related, interrelated. Uh, number one, there are not readily available characters or units that Marylanders can go to 
to hype up the importance of their state. So, you know, uh, people from Maine have Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. People from Boston have Robert Gould Shaw. People from Wisconsin have the Iron Brigade. From New York or Pennsylvania have a whole host of generals and figures that you can talk about. If you are a Marylander, you don't have a whole lot you can talk about in terms of the union side of individuals who you can readily identify as sort of your state's heroes of the war. And so part of this uh, series of blog posts I did recently was to rectify that problem. And one of the reasons for this, the reason that Maryland's union story is often ignored is because it did not rise to prominence in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, as most Civil War enthusiasts know, uh, Maryland was a border state. It provided troops to the Union and to the Confederacy. Uh, and so both stories are important. Uh, but without a doubt, the state provided far more Union troops than it did Confederate troops. And yet, after the war, the literature was dominated by pro-Confederate writing. And this was the result of two historians who influenced the history of the state's Civil War. One was a guy named John Thomas Scharf, who was a Confederate um, artilleryman during the Civil War. And after the war was over, he was invited to become one of the leading figures in the Maryland Historical Society. And so, you know, uh, being a Confederate uh, veteran in those days did not disqualify you from being a member of the, of the Maryland Historical Society. And he had tremendous influence on how that organization depicted Maryland's Civil War history. He invited a lot of Confederate veterans to write uh, articles for it. And although he, he did a attempt to bring in the Union side, it just was not his cup of tea. Uh, so because of that, there was a lot more effort put in by historians who followed him to tell the tale of Maryland's Confederate history. And the other historian who kind of unintentionally drove Maryland's history towards the Confederate memory side was a guy named James Garfield Randall, who wrote a book called Constitutional Problems Under Lincoln. Uh, the name is probably um, known to a lot of Lincoln enthusiasts out there. This book uh, was the book that put Maryland on the map when it came to Lincoln's questionable use of the suspension of habeas corpus in 1861, uh, where there were a number of controversial cases in Maryland involved cases of treason that Lincoln had to crack down on because he did not trust the courts to handle it correctly. And as a result, um, a lot of historians followed, followed Randall, suggested that Maryland was a largely pro-Confederate state because of this resistance that it had to Lincoln in 1861. And then the story of the state's union contributions, its, it's uh, troops that it raised, its support of the union, its eventual emancipation of slavery through its constitution in 1864, uh, all these stories got forgotten. Uh, and they haven't really started to resurface until maybe the late 20th century. So in essence, uh, that's the reason it's hard to be uh, a Marylander and a fan of the Army of the Potomac, because you don't have these go-to characters, and also you have to slide out from under the shadow of the state's voluminous Confederate history. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, it's to this day, I mean, you talk to people in the state of Maryland, I, I think the majority of them would think that most Marylanders fought for the Confederacy, um, or that there was a, you know, that it was just an overwhelmingly Confederate state, or that there was a handful of people, that it was divided. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, efforts like this um, on a blog like this, and hopefully maybe even someday in a book, um, are important because they, they set the record straight in the sense that, um, yeah, there were Confederates, but there also were a lot of Union men. So let's talk about some of them. Um, Nathan Thomas Duchesne. 
Why should we know about him? Why does he matter? Yeah, so Nathan Thomas Duchesne is one of the earliest Union Maryland volunteers. Uh, he enlists in the Union Army in April of 1861, right when the call for volunteers comes out. Uh, and he is uh, becomes one of the kind of highest-ranking field officers to Maryland. Uh, he joins a unit called the 1st Maryland uh, Volunteers, the 1st uh, Federal Regiment from Maryland. And he serves until 1864 when he is killed. Uh, but he is with uh, some of the state's premier units throughout the story of the Civil War. Uh, he's involved in a, in a deeply Maryland incident from the Civil War called the Battle of Front Royal. Uh, this is a kind of chaotic battle in May of 1862, where his regiment, the 1st Maryland, is holding a rear guard action against an overwhelming Confederate force led by Stonewall Jackson. And at the end of this battle, the most of the 1st Maryland is forced to surrender, including uh, Duchesne himself. He's uh, actually directing the last stand at a little uh, farm north of the town. Uh, and the reason it's kind of a, a very Maryland incident is because the unit that ends up capturing the 1st Maryland is its Confederate counterpart, the 1st Maryland Confederate Infantry, uh, which is sort of the illegal Confederate unit that was raised right around the same time. Uh, so humiliating moment for the Union Marylanders because they were captured by their own brethren. Uh, but Duchesne uh, is not at all, um, you know, um, dissuaded by this after he's paroled and sent back to Union lines. He helps recruit the 1st Maryland back to full strength in the summer of 1862, and they actually increase the size of the Maryland contingent to build this big brigade called the Maryland Brigade, which eventually includes my ancestor, uh, Sergeant Alexander. And uh, eventually, Duchesne rises to command of this brigade, and he leads it uh, back into action with the Army of the Potomac in 1864. Uh, he's very uh, unceremoniously thrown from his horse at a battle called Harris Farm, and then at the Battle of Globe Tavern in August 1864, uh, he is killed by an artillery shell. And he gets identified by uh, some of the earliest historians of the state's Union history as being kind of the, the emblematic officer, the guy that, that um, was the epitome of a Union Maryland sacrifice during the war, uh, someone who was willing to step in on the side of the government very early in the conflict, uh, was with these important Maryland units throughout and then gave his life uh, in the kind of bloody uh, overland Petersburg campaign of the Civil War. Uh, so that's the story of uh, Colonel Duchesne, and you know it's a story that I think has been kind of forgotten by Union Marylanders or from Maryland's history. Um, and you know, part of the blog again is to draw attention to him and uh, kind of what he meant to Union Maryland veterans after the war. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of great detail there. And I also know that, um, just because we've heard about this recently, but there's preservation efforts to try and preserve um, Fort Duchesne, which was a um, a fort down near Petersburg that I guess was yeah. named in his honor after he had fallen. Mm-hmm. Um, and- yeah, right. and it was kind of a big thing about all the forts around Petersburg is that they were you know named for these officers, usually men who had kind of reached you know brigadier generalship or, or colonelcy, uh, but people who had died during the Overland campaign that uh, they wanted to say, well, what is one way we can honor them? We'll build these huge earthworks. And, and Duchesne, Fort Duchesne was named for him. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, one of the other things that I think not only is overlooked when it comes to Marylanders in the Army of the Potomac, but just overlooked in general, and I think is is finally getting its due, but is the, you know, the history of the United States um, colored troops, United States colored infantry. And 
there are three regiments that you call out um, that you know were recruited here, and then others that actually had Marylanders in them as well. But the 19th, 30th, and 39th um, United States Colored Troops. Um, what what should people know about the African American story and that aspect of the Army of the Potomac and and Maryland's contribution to it? I mean, you, I know you have a really great little anecdote about Upper Marlboro and this this jail mm-hmm. story, but um, you know, what's some some interesting things that you think we should know about that or that you found? Yeah, I mean, I think Maryland is one of the uh, success stories of recruiting United States Colored Infantry during the Civil War. Um, not every state was willing to do it because um, you have to remember that even though these are you know northern states, they're still part of the Union. Uh, they are run by white men who have white supremacist convictions. You know, just because they support emancipation does not necessarily mean that they are going to support um, equality for African Americans. And part of that uh, entails not allowing them to become soldiers in the ranks of the Union Army. You know, and, and you could look at New York as an excellent counterexample to this, where New York, its state government was resistant to the idea of recruiting African-American regiments. Uh, its governor in 1863 was a guy named Horatio Seymour. One of the last things he wanted was to have uh, black regiments marching through the streets of Albany or New York City. And so he did his best to prevent New York from contributing to uh, the Union mobilization. But Maryland is not that way at all. It was a state that embraced African-American mobilization. Uh, They, again, raised six regiments, uh, three that served with the Army of the Potomac, and then uh, two that served with the Army of the James, and then a third that served uh, down in Texas. And um, the fact that they were able to recruit these regiments and get them armed and outfitted quickly shows uh, how accepting Marylanders were. Uh, and these regiments, you know, they go in to see some hard service. Uh, the, the three that were with the Army of the Potomac, they fight in a terrific battle called the Battle of the Crater, where many of them are killed and captured. And then the others, uh, they fight with the Army of the James. They're involved in a dramatic action in the fall of 1864 uh, called the Battle of New Market Heights, where a few of them actually received the Medal of Honor. Uh, so African-Americans were an important part of Maryland's Civil War history. And of course, the reason that they're forgotten is that so few of them wrote accounts about their actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was not very high literacy in these regiments uh, because many of them had been former enslaved people before they joined up. Uh, and a lot of the officers who were put in command over them weren't born in Maryland. Uh, there was a special federal board called the Casey board that would appoint officers to command. And a lot of the officers, the white officers in command who were literate weren't necessarily from Maryland. And so uh, they didn't really tell the story of Marylanders like you would expect they would if they were part of a volunteer unit from a a different state. So in any case, uh, that's why the story of the United States Colored Infantry is forgotten, but it shouldn't be because it was a valuable contribution to the Union Army uh, they fought in some impressive battles. They won accolades, uh, and further, the process of recruiting them helped end slavery in the state of Maryland. Does it? I mean, I'm I'm curious from your perspective, and I'm sure it's a nuanced answer. But does the the inclusion of these 180,000, 200,000 soldiers in any way really turn the tide of the war? I mean, because that's how many African American troops are. You know, that's the number that's that's thrown around. 
Do you feel like it has like a, a pivotal impact? Was it already headed in that direction? I mean, how does how do you parse out the impact of these troops just on the war itself? Yeah, that's a very difficult question to answer. It's, right. Because I mean, how do you how do you uh, weigh the impact of one person, let alone one hundred eighty thousand? Right. Uh, I would say the answer lies really in, in two aspects. It, it, number one. Um, it establishes the Union Army's commitment to emancipation, right? You know, and we have to understand that, you know, there is always a possibility that the war can end without slavery being entirely annihilated. But the moment that you start putting African Americans, especially former enslaved people, into the ranks, uh, you know that, that slavery is going to be abolished at the end of the war, or at least soon after it, right? Like, the, the, it is definitely on its way out. So, one of the contributions is not so much to the military history of the war, but to the larger story of the United States as a whole, as a nation that is moving towards abolishing this important institution that kept people enslaved. And I guess the other thing that it, that it contributes to is it does ease the tensions in certain states that are experiencing stress by the manpower mobilization. So in Maryland, it was very difficult to find enough white people to meet the demands of the federal government. Whenever they put out calls for troops, Maryland came up short. And this meant they had to hold a manpower draft at four times during the war. Uh, and that is compel people to enlist um, despite their protests. But one of the ways you could ease that burden was by allowing African-Americans to serve, uh, whether they were free African-Americans in Maryland or they were enslaved African-Americans in Maryland Slaves could be allowed to serve in the Union Army, uh, and as long as they were, their owners would free them at the end of their service, right? And so, as a result, uh, African Americans ease the burdens in Maryland. They make it easier on the home front, so that people can continue to have people back home doing the farm work or, or whatever. Uh, and so, the protests in Maryland start to to ease. Uh, later on, in 1863 and 1864, the more that African Americans are recruited into the Union Army. Uh, so there's sort of a valuable contribution, maybe in intangible ways. Yeah, absolutely. To intangible and tangible, I guess. So um, there are there are many more stories to tell, and you can find all of these. Um, right now, we're talking to Dr. Timothy Orr, Associate Professor of History at Old Dominion University. Um, and uh, some of these stories were just, just little snapshots of much larger accounts <clears throat> that he's, he's written for Tales of the Army of the Potomac, a blog that he maintains. Um, but one more before, before we depart here um, is... Uh, you tell a, an interesting story about voting um, and the deciding role of the vote of Marylanders in the Army of the Potomac in the 1864 election. Um, let's talk a little bit about voting in the Army and, and what the Marylanders accomplished with their vote. Right. It's one of my favorite stories is, is political behavior in the Army of the Potomac. So uh, the Reader's Digest version of this story is that the Maryland soldier vote is important because it overturns the home vote for the ratification of their new constitution, which goes into effect on November the 1st, 1864. And this is the constitution that abolishes slavery in Maryland forever. So the story is that when this constitution was up for a vote to the Maryland public, the people on the home front voted it down. But then when the soldier vote was tabulated, it overturned that vote 
and therefore it became law of the land. So without the soldiers, uh, there would not have been a state abolition of slavery in 1864. And one of the reasons this was a contentious issue at the time is because people were suspicious about the idea of having soldiers vote. And this just wasn't a Maryland problem, but it was a national problem. Uh, throughout the nation, no one wanted to have absentee balloting. Uh, nearly every state constitution had a clause in it that said, if you are a legal voter, you have to be in your election district to cast your ballot. And so soldiers who were fighting in Virginia or Georgia and Tennessee could not vote. Uh, so one by one, all of the states in the union have to either redraft their constitution or have amendments to it to allow soldiers to vote in the field. So the Civil War is one of the first big I don't know, test cases of the idea of absentee balloting. Right? And so for the Maryland case, the thing that's really weird about it is that part of the reason that, that the uh, Maryland Constitution is ratified in 1864 is because that it allows soldiers to vote in the field. And the reason that this is done is because the Republican Party, or rather it's called the Union Party at the time in Maryland, they devised this constitution because they want to win the, elect the national election in 1864. And they figure that soldiers are going to vote for the Republican candidate, Abraham Lincoln, over the Democratic candidate, George McClellan. So the only way they can get this to go is that they have to have a soldier voting amendment to the new constitution. And that's the thing that really gets the soldiers going. They're like, oh, well, we have this great chance to vote in the field. That's probably the thing that motivates the soldiers. But then they're also like, but if you ratify this constitution, boys, then you also have to accept the fact that slavery is done in Maryland forever. And we don't know a whole lot about how the Maryland soldiers thought about that prospect, but I imagine many of them were excited by it because if slavery is destroyed in Maryland, it is going to be hurting their Confederate neighbors, which I think is another motivating factor. And then the, the most, the weirdest thing about this whole thing is that uh, even though the, the new constitution was not passed, it allowed soldiers to vote for the constitution, right? So a, a very dubious piece of uh, constitutionalism, right? To say that you, you can vote for it, even though it hasn't been ratified yet, but that's how it was done. And uh, they overturned the uh, vote by about 375 votes. It was a very narrow margin. Uh, but in essence, again, without the Army of the Potomac's Marylanders voting, slavery would have con would have existed in Maryland after the Civil War and would not have been uh, done away with until the 13th Amendment was ratified by the country in December of 1865. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and it's one that, I mean, I don't think most Marylanders have any sense for. Um and, you know, when you talk about, you know, we don't know about what Marylanders were thinking this and that. It seems like it's it's fertile ground for, for something to be written on or, or even more extensively researched. Particularly, it's particularly relevant right now as we're in the, in the depths of a pandemic and talking about, can we all vote from home? Can we vote by mm -hmm. mail? Um, and now there's a debate about, well, no, that's terrible. We can't vote by mail. And then people are like, well, we let soldiers vote by mail. Um, right, and, right. and, you know, the, the, the beginnings of this go back to the Civil War. So it is a relevant conversation for this moment as well. Yeah, and for sure. I, and when I always do talks about this subject of soldiers voting during the Civil War, I, I always try to point out how nowadays uh, the situation is very flip-flopped because uh, soldiers in the Army of the Potomac were encouraged to act politically, to um, you know, publish political diatribes in the newspapers, 
to have political rallies in their camps, you know, to have their officers kind of organize political events and support candidates. Uh, but the one thing that they were discouraged from doing was voting. Uh, and today it's reversed, where we encourage our service persons to vote in the field, to you know, uh, participate in the elective process, but they're discouraged from acting politically while they have a uniform on, right? They, they, they can't hold political rallies on their, their ships at sea or in their encampments on the front or in their bases. Uh, these are all things that are discouraged. And so we've kind of gone completely 180 in both uh, ideas. So it's, it is definitely an idea that's introduced in the 19th century. It still goes on today. Uh, you know, what makes a legal voter? And so this was a question that the Civil War generation had to had to deal with in 1863 and 1864. <laughs> yeah, here we are, right? Yeah, yeah. Some things, as you as you well know, some things never change. Um, so this has been this truly has been fun. Uh, it's it's always good to hear you and um, get to hear about what you're researching and what you're thinking about. Um, and we can and should do this again if people want to read more, learn more again. Um, they can find this out at Tales of the Army of the Potomac, where you can get all these great Maryland stories and, and others. Um, other publications, where can they find out more about you, Dr. Orr? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so there is going to be a book out that is going to incorporate a little bit of this research. Uh, it is a edited collection of essays about Maryland and the Civil War being published by Louisiana State University Press. The, the editors are Gene Harvey Baker and Charlie Mitchell. Uh, and so some of this research uh, that we talked about here is going to appear in my essay on uh, Baltimore recruitment during the Civil War. There's going to be a bunch of other brand new essays on Civil War Maryland. Uh, so you can look for that publication uh, probably years from now. Uh, you can also, again, go to Tales from the Arms of the Potomac. And if you are a Pacific War fan, uh, my wife and I, we run a Facebook page uh, on one of our recent books uh, called Never Call Me a Hero. So if you go on Facebook and look for Never Call Me a Hero, Dusty Cleese in the Battle of Midway, uh, we have kind of an interesting little um, page there that, that shares a bunch of stories from uh, naval aviation of the Pacific War. So from you know the, the streets of Baltimore to the blue of the Pacific, Dr. Orr and his and his equally talented wife have you covered when it comes to history? Yes, indeed. Uh, I, I can't explain it, uh, the connection between the Civil War and World War II, but uh, one of my esteemed advisors at Penn State, Cale Reardon, told me once, never be a one war wonder, and I hope I have striven to do just that. <laughs> so um, before you go, the most difficult question we ask for any historian or pretty much anybody who comes on the show what is your favorite historic site or place? Well, it's an easy one. Uh, it is Gettysburg um, because I have such a deeply personal connection to it. You know, I lived there for about a decade. I worked there. I got my education there. I got married there. Uh, so it is a, a place I know well, a place I have trod many times, uh, walking in the footsteps of the soldiers who fought. So um, Gettysburg is sort of my mecca for history. I, I just, you know... It gets me out of my my existence to go there. Yeah, hard to beat, and uh, would have to agree with you on it. And I actually think uh, tomorrow my daughter and I are headed up there and going to do a little hiking. So get out, stretch our legs, and be socially distant on a battlefield. I envy you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
Tim, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Always interesting to hear about what you're working on, what you're researching, and looking forward to reading uh, more about this in that forthcoming book and uh, what else uh, you have coming. Uh, We're looking forward to hearing that as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. Awesome, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.